0: Well, good morning again. Um, welcome to those of you that are watching us online as well. Super happy that you're here this morning and good to see you all, y'all today. Um, I just have two announcements for us it's going to be weird so maybe i could just like add a lot of extra no kidding i'll get straight to the point this coming wednesday we're going to have dinner in the park at briar park and that happens at 6 30 p.m bring your own food whatever you want for dinner and then we're going to play some family friendly soccer this time and would love to have you come out for that if it is raining, pouring down rain, you can watch our Facebook page or our Instagram page at Brookview Church, and we will post whether or not we're delaying, postponing, canceling, whatever that might be. And so if you're wondering about that, just go to Facebook, go to Instagram. Um, and if you don't know how to go there and you don't do that right now, that is very reasonable. Um, let me just say that, and so you can always text us as well, and uh, phone number is at brookviewchurch.com, and we will just get you whatever information you're looking for on that date, but I hope that you'll come out before that um, and just enjoy some hang time together and playing and being a little silly. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be silly, but Bob is over there. It's, yeah. We're planning on that, so bring your silly. (laughs) Um, And then the other announcement is just simply to fill out your online communication card. We love hearing from you. Um, When you put in prayer requests, we have a team of people that pray throughout the week, um, and it is just a great way for you to respond to anything you would like to and connect with us. And you can find that um, communication card at brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact. That's it.
1: Chinese authorities have traced a new deadly virus back to this seafood market in Today the city the of Wuhan. the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. The U.S. does not have enough coronavirus tests. unemployment rate tripling to 14.7%. coronavirus is
0: still high across the country. Students, teachers, and parents have been forced to adapt to distance learning. The Golden State, a record-breaking 2 million-plus acres have burned.
1: The nation erupted into scenes of chaos
0: violence
1: oh my God. and widespread
0: destruction into the early morning hours from brazil to iran thousands have gathered to show solidarity with u.s protests over the killing of george floyd
1: pfizer is shipping out the first doses of the coronavirus vaccine as we speak now we can't force you to take a jab in the arm but there are many jobs, perhaps, that can prevent you from working if you decide not to get vaccinated. You
0: know, people are angry. I mean, on the Internet, I see people are threatening to boycott restaurants that follow these guidelines. Several countries have offered assistance to Haiti, including the U.S., Panama, Colombia and Mexico, among Family others.
1: Family members and children trying to get to the airport, but being whipped back and beaten by Taliban fighters. You guys, I, I want to start a new series, I'll talk about that in a minute. And I asked Jen to put together a video just sort of chronicling some of the stuff that's gone on over the last year and a half. Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. And with, uh, I mean, the stuff that's gone on is unbelievable, but this, the video, I was like, I am discovering after, how long has it been, 97, 24 years of marriage... I am discovering that she is a little bit more than just a pretty face. So we've got that going. Also, I have to give a shout-out. Um, our worship team lost its uh, lead instrument, uh, our guitar player, on Thursday. And so Kelly, Jen, said, Kelly, could you, could you lead from piano? And Kelly's like, I guess. She's slaying it. Like, let's go. Girlfriend, you can tickle the ivories. (laughs) So today we are, we're starting a a four-week series called Strange Times, because we are living in the midst of some seismic cultural shifts. And really the question for us is, as followers of Jesus, how do we navigate it? In this past year plus, like, we have faced an onslaught of strangeness. Now, Americans have faced hard times before. Like, just this week, I was talking with Kate, my 22-year-old daughter, and we we're talking about the reality that, like, what her great-grandparents lived through, some of the stuff that just came at them. Like, they lived through World War I, right? And then the Depression, and then World War II. Um, so that, like, but here's, here's what makes our time strange in a very different way. In World War I, and the Depression, and World War II, People were in it together. Those things tended to, not always, but they tended to bring people together. Um, but, but much of, of that, like, not, not all of it, but much of it actually served to unify people. But in this past season, right, the division and the polarization are just palpable. So many people have lived through the acute pain of this season like the compounding effects of a pandemic and a recession and injustice and the political turmoil and wildfires fires and crazy things happen, happening globally. All of it, they've gone through that alone. Lonely and sad with nobody to process all of the trauma with. And there's been all sorts of research conducted on the science of happiness. And here's what's fascinating. I just find this fascinating. There are not like hundreds of factors that lead to someone being happy or not being happy. You you can actually summarize what makes people happy or sad down to like three or four main things. So here here they are in a nutshell. This is like a summary of the research. Number one, what makes people happy? Number one, a few close friends. People aren't happy if if they know and are known. If they have people that they feel safe with, people that you don't have to project an image toward, but you can just sort of let your guard down and be your real self. People who aren't perfect, but when they're happy, we're happy, and when they're sad, we're sad, and vice versa. So a few good friends, okay? Then second, a connected family, like mom, dad, sisters, brothers, cousins, grandparents, all of that, but not just biology, like, relational closeness. People that, through thick and thin, are there. Okay, and then number three, meaningful work. And get this, it, somebody's not having meaningful work. I, 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 I heard that groan. <laughs> Just so you all know, I love my job. It's very meaningful. <laughs> um, it it Meaningful work, and it actually doesn't matter that much it doesn't matter, actually with the research, it doesn't matter if it's high paying or low paying. It doesn't matter if, if it doesn't pay at all. Sometimes our work may not be a career, it's raising kids or it's volunteering or there's other things. But if people feel like they regularly make a contribution to human flourishing in some way, even at a very ordinary level, then at the end of the day, they generally feel pretty good about life. And then finally, number four, a way to make sense of life, like a theology or philosophy to make sense not only of life, but just as importantly, of death and suffering, which is exactly what secularism cannot give us. So if you were to boil this down even further, happiness essentially resides in friends, family, vocation, and religion. And as a generation we are actually living through the hollowing out of all four. All four factors that experts and researchers tell us are the keys to happiness. And of course, a big factor in all of this is the the shift to this digital age, right? We now relate to each other in drastically different ways. And so get this, the average American in just a few years, not like decades, but just a few years has gone from 3.2 friends to 1.8 on average, meaning friendship across our nation has been cut in half. This guy named Robert Putnam is a a famous Harvard researcher, and he reports that 40% of Americans now have zero to one confidant. So, Four out of 10 Americans have little to no one to just talk with, to process pain with, to process this last year with. Americans, you guys, have become the loneliest people on earth. Now, there is a historical reason for this and a current one. Let me run through both of these. The first, first, the historical one is that, as you know, America is a social experiment built around what sociologists call radical individualism. So in every culture, there's always a tension between the individual and the group. In traditional cultures, right, the weight is over on the side of the group. Um, and if extreme, then those cultures can, can actually be oppressive to the individual. Right. And so America is in part a reaction to the abuse of authority structures. It's a response to the, the oppression or, or repression of the individual. So we get what's come to be called radical individualism. And, of course, concern for the individual and individual rights and all of that is really important. But when taken to the extreme, it actually causes a whole slew of other problems. Because individualism, or if you prefer the synonym, autonomy, is in direct direct tension with all four factors that we're told lead to a happy life. Friends, family, vocation, and religion, because all four require us to surrender our autonomy to someone or something beyond ourselves. We long for autonomy. We really do. We long for our autonomy, but we often don't really consider the cost because you can have autonomy or you can have loving relationships, but it is very hard, if not downright impossible to have both. So the historical reason for our loneliness epidemic is radical individualism. That's the historic reason. But more recently then you can add to it, tribalism. Like this exaggerated, this exaggerated phenomenon thing that's happening in our culture that is exaggerated by all things digital. Tribalism is, is marked out by joining a group that, that defines itself as being in opposition to other groups. So it's based not on mutual love, but on mutual hate. It's based not on what you're for, but what you're against. And all of this is being intensified by the digital age, right, and the isolation of COVID. And for a, a growing number of people, the pri- their primary community, and with that, their identity, Their their sense of self, their sense of self-worth, their moral vision, their sense of the meaning and purpose of life, it all comes from online more than face-to-face relationships. The impact of doing relationships digitally really has yet to be fully understood. Like People are doing research on this, but we're right in the middle of it. But, but right now, there's, there's so much obsession and so much discussion about division and all the things that are going on because of social injustice and politics and, and this war that is, that is just raging between the right and the left. But when historians tell the story of our generation, like 100 years from now, like when we are all dead and gone, I wonder if the story won't actually be primarily about political polarization, I wonder if the bigger headline will be about this generation facing digital disruption, about the internet and social the, about the internet and social media and the shift that has happened to an online world, and then of course how that shift has interacted with COVID. And when we read about the, like the shift just historically, when we read about the shift from an agrarian society to an to like to the industrial revolution, when you think about it. We're living through something very much like that right now. We are smack in the middle of the digital revolution. And right now, tribalism is tearing us apart. It's tearing apart the fabric of our nation. It's tearing apart families. It's tearing apart friends. It's even tearing apart churches. Guys, these are like like strange, strange times. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, wow, dude, this is like really intense. I just want to say, if you were here last week, it was all flowers and rainbows. (laughs) Was it not? And I warned you that today I would come in here and tear you apart. No, not at all. Um, Today, actually, I just want us to be aware of the situation, but today is not intended to be negative at all. The situation around us is strange, and it is unsettling. But right in the middle of it, I have some really good news. I have, like, gospel news. That in the middle of all of these huge cultural shifts, in the middle of radical individualism and tribalism, Jesus invites us to participate together, in something beautiful. And you guys, I am full of hopeful energy for the future of our church, because I think we're more needed in our culture now than we have ever been. I think the world needs to see the way of Jesus on display. It needs to see a compelling example of community, of people truly sharing life together. And today, what I want us to do is to look at what I think is a brilliant passage from the New Testament. And it's found right in the middle of the book of Romans. So we find this beautiful, compelling vision of community, of the church. And it's this picture of an alternate society in sharp relief to the individualism and tribalism of our day. And you guys, this is one of the most stunning passages on community, I think, in the entire Bible. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Romans is like a theological masterpiece. The first eight chapters really are all all this deep theology. They're all about what God has done in Jesus through his coming and his life and his teachings, through his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. Chapters one to eight are all about what God has done for us and what essentially God has done for all of creation through Jesus. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's all about what Jesus has done in this new community that he's building called the church. How Jesus gave birth to a a new kind of society, a new multi-ethnic Jew plus Gentile family. Two groups, two social groups that in the first century were literally at each other's throats coming together in a family. They were at each other's throats in pain and war and oppression and injustice. Two groups that have now come together as brothers and sisters through Jesus. Okay, so then in chapter 12, you get to this sort of hinge chapter in the book of Romans. Um, And the opening line that we're about to read begins by saying, Therefore, meaning in light of the last 11 chapters... In light of all that, here's the vision for how we are to do life together. And today, you guys, we are going to cover all of Romans chapter 12. And we are going to have to fly through some of this. So, here we go. Verse 1. Therefore, in light of everything Jesus has done and this new society he's calling us to participate in that that Paul's talked about in chapters 1 to 11. Therefore, in light of all that. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And there it is. In light of what Jesus has done, Paul opens this and says, we're to live like family, like family, like brothers and sisters. Now, we're not a family by blood. We're not a family by by soil. We're not a family by political ideology. We're a family because we are attempting to live out the will of God together. So we don't primarily live together. We don't live like Americans. We don't live like Seattleites. We don't live like conservatives or like liberals. We live together as the people of Jesus. Verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world... But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. To live as a family, as brothers and sisters, will actually require something very different from the broader culture. We we cannot just adopt or conform to the pattern of this world. We live in a world with all kinds of tribes and all kinds of divisions and deep selfishness. Right? But to be the, the family of Jesus together, we're going to have to adopt a new pattern. And Paul here is laying out for us a contrasting pattern or vision to that of our culture, to that of our world. His very honest yet challenging vision for, for being set apart. What it looks like to not conform to the pattern of this world. Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul says, use sober judgment when you think about yourself. Some of you, you know, I don't know. Use sober judgment. I love that. In other words, recognize your limitations and celebrate the strength of others. God has given you gifts, but you also have limitations. God has given gifts to others that he has not given to you. So you will need to rely on other people a lot. And it means, this is so painful, but it means you cannot be the expert on everything. Humility will be a prerequisite to live well in this new family verses 4 to 5. For just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And now Paul shifts the metaphor from a family to the metaphor of a body, which is like even more unified. And the idea is that we, we all have many body parts, right, that form a, a single person. You have toes and you have ears and you have a, a spleen, right, and, and hair and, and elbows, right? But, but each of those individual parts, they're all of them are you. They all have different and yet very important functions. And it's the same way in the church. One body with all these different parts, verses 6 to 8. Paul says we have different gifts, According to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is, is prophesying, in other words, kind of saying the truth, spelling out the truth, calling out what's, what is, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just examples all of us bring something a little bit different to the table. And so you guys, when you think about it, this takes radical individualism and just throws it out the window. And now Paul like, rapid fires off a list of over 25 short staccato commands of what it, what it takes to actually be like one body together, what it takes to be unified, what it takes to live together as family. And I'm telling you, these are staccato, they're rapid fire. They come at you you fast. So I am going to fly through all 25. You ready? Hold on to your hat. Here we go. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Love must come from the heart, right? Be sincere, but also hate evil cling to good our moral vision of good and evil does not come to us from our culture but it comes from the life and the teachings of Jesus verse 10 be devoted to one another in love honor one another above yourselves so what does it mean to not conform to the pattern of this world well part of it it means that we're devoted to one another It means that that we're not just devoted to god We are devoted to God, but also we're devoted to one another. It means that we honor one another above ourselves. We recognize deep beauty and value in one another. We recognize that that all of these people around us make a unique contribution, both to the church and to, to our own lives. And so we take time to celebrate that and praise them. We pause to recognize one another. And instead of clamoring to be the one that is being celebrated... We step back from that desire, and we look around for how we can celebrate others. This is not the pattern of this world. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So stir up, like actively stir up that inner passion for God and for serving. And then together pour fuel on each other's fire to serve Jesus and to do good. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Don't don't suffer alone, but when you suffer, suffer together and remind each other of why we live with hope. In that way, you can walk through affliction with great patience and much greater strength. And Paul just wants us to constantly remind each other that what is is not what always will be because God is up to something. So stay connected with God in prayer. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Those of us that have extra, whether a lot or a little, are to share with those that don't have in the spirit of justice and equity. We are to practice hospitality. We're to open our homes. We're to eat meals together around a table. So let your home, let your table be a place where God is worshiped, where God is honored, where community is built. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So when you face cultural hostility and it's, it's rising right now and we're feeling that in our bones, Paul is saying whether you're feeling that from outside the church or inside the church, here's what you are to do. Be a graveyard for hate. Don't return hate with hate. When hate comes at you or on you, you just let it die there. Our, our calling in this era is to actually follow the example of Jesus, to be cru- who, who was crucified in public and yet did not retaliate. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. When people are facing loss or fear or sadness, be sad with them. When those in the family are celebrating, then celebrate together. Don't live this I-do-me, you-do-you kind of life. Verse 16, live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And again, this is all a picture of what it means to be set apart. He says, live in harmony. Find a way to get past political tensions, personal tensions. Find a way to get past differences on non-central issues. Find a way to live at peace with one another. So, do not be proud, but, but willing to associate with people of low position. See, if we're proud and we're trying to outclimb and just outshine one another, then all we're doing is replicating the pattern of our world. And that way of life is death to a community, it's death to a family. And what happens when people in the church inevitably hurt one another? Verse 17 do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the sight or eyes of everyone. So in other words, when you're hurt, don't hurt back. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It takes two people to live in peace and harmony, right? It takes the will of two different people. But Paul is saying, as far as it depends on you, do your part. Be gracious, be kind, be invitational. Meet them more than halfway. Verses 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Like go out of your way to show extra kindness to those that have hurt you. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What? That's weird, right? Heap burning coals on their head? Like, what? Okay, this is actually a quote from Proverbs 25 in the Old Testament. And it's a reference to an image from very ancient cultures. I don't know about you, I've never heaped burning coals on anyone's head. I'm pretty sure Jesus would be against that. Um <laughs> So this is an image from ancient culture. It was a saying and an image from ancient culture. And and you guys, there are multiple suggestions for how to interpret it. And if I were to stop right here and walk through them all, you would fall asleep. And it would would just derail us. It would take way too long. So I encourage you to look it up for yourself. (laughs) But the point that Paul is making all around this verse is not ambiguous. It's not tricky at all. The essence of what he's saying all through here is, show extra kindness to people when they hurt you so you can can live at peace with them. Therefore, whatever the interpretation of the burning coals thing is, it fits into that theme, which becomes even more obvious in Paul's closing statement. So here's the summary point for it all. Last verse, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a beautiful and compelling vision, is it not? I mean, I, I can't, you guys, I kind of feel like we should just stop right here and give the Bible some applause. Like, let's go. <laughs> but, okay, that's a lot to remember. <laughs> You're like, okay, so I, I'm supposed to do What? Uh, so let me, let me kind of boil this down and summarize it. And this is just my attempt to kind of pull out three main ideas for us to really wrap our minds around to live out. Okay, so here we go. Number one. Number one, forgive each other for not being God. It, it is really, it's, it's essential that we have reasonable expectations of one another. And the first command for community is forgive each other for not being God. Why? Because no church, no community, no relationship, no friendship, no spouse, no marriage, no family of origin, no parents, no children, no pastor can live up to all of our expectations. Everyone and everything, I'm I'm sorry to be a downer, but everyone and everything will at some point let you down, including yourself. You can't even live up to your own expectations. And neither can I. We're human. We're all flawed and we're all broken. So let's be real about it. Christians love to point to Acts chapter 2 as like the template for the church, right? Um, and it, it is. It's a stunning description of the early church. And you hear people say, oh, we need. That's what we need. We all the churches should be like that. We should. We should be. We should be like the early church." And okay, that's not a bad idea. That's not not a bad thing to be striving for. There's a lot there to emulate. But sometimes, people are are living in in a fantasy of what the church should be, like they envision the, some sort of utopia. And then they walk in and they meet real people and they, and they experience like an actual church. And they get hit with all this frustration and disappointment. But you guys think about this. If Acts is our example, we should probably keep reading beyond chapter 2. You think? And sometimes people don't realize that Acts chapter 2, that in that phase, the church is still in like the honeymoon phase right? That same church in Jerusalem, you just keep reading a few chapters later, if you just keep reading in the book of Acts, it will go on to deal with racism, full-on uh, income inequality, persecution, power dynamics, leadership splits, false teaching, debates over theology, total confusion about what to do next, and on and on and on. Acts paints a picture of a church that's beautiful, but you guys, it is anything but Utopia. So many people in our generation are disillusioned with the church. And a lot of it is for really good reason. I mean, certainly historically, right? But also over the last like year plus. I mean, for many of us, it's really hard to process things that are said and done by people who claim at some level to follow Christ. So a lot of disillusionment. Well, sometimes our disillusionment comes really from like just irrational expectations. We expect the church to be free of sin and brokenness altogether. But uh, you guys, what is a church? A church is just a gathering of people that are learning to live a new way together. We're learning. And so we should expect to encounter stuff that needs to be forgiven. Stuff that's broken, that will take a lot of work to fix. We have to enter into this with realistic expectations. There's a classic book called Life Together, written by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the time of the Nazis. And he established this underground like Christian uh, community called Finkenwald. And it was a training institute that was primarily based on the teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And so people came into this community, they lived together, like they in a co-housing situation, and they learned to live the way of Jesus together. Bonhoeffer went on to be executed by the Nazis shortly before the end of World War II. But he wrote a little book about living in community based on his very extensive experience called Life Together. And in it, he, des- he describes what it is that will destroy community. And I think this is so true and so well said. He writes, The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. You guys, it's so easy to love the dream of community. It's so easy because it's not the real thing. It's just like a hypothetical situation. It's it's easy to love the idea of community or the idea of a church or the idea of a relationship or the idea of a marriage or the idea of friendship or the idea of... And you just fill in the blank. It's a lot harder to love your actual spouse your actual church, or to love your actual friends when they inevitably behave badly. I mean, let's think back to Romans 12, Paul's vision for community. It's beautiful, but what's cool about it is it's honest about real life, real community. I mean, notice all of this stuff that's built into these 25-plus commands. Paul just assumes there's going to be tension, that there's going to be interpersonal conflict. That you're going to want to get back at people. That you're hurt and you're going to want to get even. That you're full of pride. That you don't want to share. That you don't want to listen to other people. That you are jealous of other, And on and on and on. Paul's commands just assume that all of that stuff is in all of us. So this stuff will need to be overcome along the way. And we're going to need to forgive each other for not being God. Okay, second thing we see. In Paul's twenty-five commands is, I guess I would summarize it this way, listen in love. Psychologists tell us that when, when people and that technical language is when people feel felt, meaning they, they feel that the this sense of someone is someone is really listening to me and compassionate attention. Like they're not distracted, they're not on their phone, they're, they're not listening in judgment or, or just as I'm saying what I'm saying, they're forming their rebuttal. They're just listening in, in compassionate attention. When we experience that, we actually experience love and healing. They don't even have to say anything. We just experience love and healing. And You guys, this last year has been traumatic for pretty much all of us. If it hasn't been traumatic for you, tell me your secret later. But, but psychologists also tell us that trauma is not just what happens when people experience suffering. Because lots of people experience suffering and they actually come out the other side just fine. People do it all the time. Trauma is what happens when we experience suffering alone when we don't have anyone to hold that pain with us. Robert Stolro is a psychologist and a philosopher, and he's studied and written extensively on trauma, and he writes this, and I think this is beautiful. says, Trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. I just think that's beautiful language, the idea of a relational home where we can be held. I mean, that's the call, right? I mean, if you look at Paul's words, that's the call to function as a relational home for one another. A community of people who really listen to one another. A place where we can, we can feel safe enough to let our guard down and be real. And when we talk, we don't, we don't have to hit the edit button first. We can just process our, our real emotions as they are really coming to us. But I want to give a warning here. Because you can hear me say this, you can be sitting where you are, I'm up here on the platform, you're there, you can hear me say this and then think, you know, you're right, Pastor. So how is the church doing that for me? Do I feel felt? Do I feel like I'm being heard and and listened to? Gosh, you know, sometimes I don't. Maybe this church isn't really serving me very well. And I I just want to say, the more you focus on you being served instead of how you can serve others, the more this is all about your needs being met, the less likely you are to breathe life into anyone else. A bad question is, well, how's the church doing that for me? A better question is, who are you doing that for? Are you someone that really listens in that kind of way? Who are you serving by being that and doing that for them these days? Again, if you think of the church as just this hypothetical utopia where everything is just supposed to be flowers and rainbows all the time, and then you have this season which inevitably comes for every one of us where we don't feel felt, then you become disillusioned and you're inclined to just walk away. But if each of us is striving ourselves to become better listeners, we really can experience God's kingdom together. And again, that's very different from the pattern of this world. But we have to be individuals willing to serve others in this way. And you know when this is really important? It's really important when we come across somebody with a different viewpoint. I had a a man in our church that came to me many months ago. And he came to me because he was concerned about another man's social media post. And it became clear that he was bringing them to my attention, hoping that I would go out and confront the other man. And that I would tell him that his thinking wasn't very Christ-like and that he needed to repent and change his behavior. So I asked hey, you have a relationship with this guy, right? Well, yes, I do. But we don't really agree on a lot, especially in the political world, so we're not very close, and I just don't think I'm the right guy to confront him. So I asked, well, okay. What if it wasn't really about confronting? What if you just met with him one-on-one? And then, not as a confrontation, but just out of kindness, You asked him to tell you about his experiences, what he's walked through. What what if you were to sit down with him and just be curious and leave judgment at the door? No listening so you can like pounce and dismantle his erroneous thoughts. Just listen and then be curious and then ask more questions that flow out of that curiosity. And along the way, you ask about his thoughts on the issue at hand that's concerning you, among many other things you're asking him about. And then when you really understand where he's coming from and you really know what he thinks and how he came to think it, then maybe you share your thoughts on that same thing and your take on it and you see what he thinks. Because here's my guess. You're not getting the whole story on Facebook. Right? I mean, come on. So, how about this? How about you go to him and you build a bridge and you do your very best to get the whole story? And so I just said, I'm not going. You go. Be a brother. You guys, you don't want to go to a church where the pastor patrols your social media <laughs> and confronts anyone that posts something that he deems off. You don't. You don't want that. And if you do want a church like that, I will tell you right now, this is not going to be that church. I have no interest in that. I'm interested in building a family where people learn to listen to one another. I'm interested in building a family where where even when we differ on very emotional topics, we listen, where we can feel felt. We can, like brothers and sisters, love one another through differences of all kinds. And if we need to challenge each other along the way, which inevitably we're going to, when we need to challenge each other along the way, we, we do that, but we do it kindly and gently and in love and in relationship. And only after really, really, really listening. But you guys, this isn't just about differences, right? This whole listen and love thing, it's about everything. It's about the sorrows, the joys, the fears, the losses, the hurts. We listen to one another sincerely, and compassionate love. It's really important. So again, I just want to ask you, who are you doing that for? I mean, let's not just like keep this as a hypothetical good idea. Like, who are you spending time with these days so you can just listen? Okay, then very quickly, last. Last way to summarize 25 plus commands of Paul is number three, and this is going to sound really simple and lame, stay. Number three, stay. In our culture, we are so quick to walk away from one another. Paul is saying, do everything possible to work through issues. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But that will require, see, that will require hanging in there. Not walking away. It will require navigating differences and hurts and challenges. And that is what actually forms us deeply. So often in our culture, we don't allow ourselves to be formed into the image of Christ because as soon as something challenging happens, we go. But if we live in that kind of community where everyone just leaves immediately, where everybody's walking around on eggshells, then we're going to become very reluctant to get real, to let other people see a little bit of our shadow side. And what happens then is our growth is stunted. And this is why the relationships with the most potential to form us into the likeness of Jesus are the long-term ones, because those people come to see us as we actually are. Now, there are times, right, to, to break off a relationship because it's toxic or it's, it's unsafe. I mean, that, that just goes without saying. Or because God calls you in another direction and you just need to move or move on. Like, not all relationships, not all friendships are designed to last until you die. Like, that's okay. But as a general rule, we stay. Or at least we're really, really slow to go. Okay, let me summarize. What does it take to live in, together in community? Forgive each other for not being God. Listen in love and stay. And if this feels really like non-dramatic and unglamorous, um, I, I just think this is how you guys, I, I get it. It does feel that way. It doesn't feel all that exciting. But this is how we can play a small part in the healing and the renewal of people and the broader culture. This is how we do it. This guy named David Brooks said in a recent interview, he's a New York Times guy, he said, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. We're a small group of people in the broader culture of greater Seattle. Like as followers of Jesus, I don't know what percentage we might make up. It's pretty small. But right now, there are a lot of people in the culture all around us that are beginning to ask questions. A lot of the facade of secularism and individualism, all of the isms of our time, in this season, they are starting to crumble and fall apart, and people see it. And so they're looking around right now, looking for a different way. They're looking for a better way. And we've got all kinds of issues and problems, even here at Brookview. We've got issues and problems. But what if we were to find a better way and then just continually invite others in. In in the middle of these huge cultural shifts, in the middle of radical individualism and tribalism, Jesus invites us to participate together in this little alternative society. A society extending open arms to lonely and broken and hurting people. That's awesome. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this family, for this body that is Brookview. And I thank you for the way this group of people has, has really embodied all three of those things so well for so long. Not perfectly. But we do. We forgive each other for not being God. And we, we listen in love. And we have stayed through all kinds of things. And that is so beautiful but I just pray that you would continue to help us to navigate the craziness that's going on in our culture, that you would help us to invest in something that can actually bring life and hope and healing to each other and to our world. God, this idea of being a family together, being one body working together, it's difficult, but it's beautiful. So help us to continually learn how to do it better and better and better. All for your glory. Amen.